If you were here with us uh, during Christmas, you may remember that we read Luke 2, and now today we're at Matthew 2. Um, Each of these stories or narratives is uh, especially helpful during the Christmas season, uh, both in reading, both at church, and in your in your own life, to to kind of restore Christmas from the uh, commercialization or or secularization that it has undergone. And what I mean by that is that we tend to see Christmas as Jesus coming to be born king of the world, but that isn't anchored in the understanding that Jesus was born as the king of the Jews. That's uh, something we've been looking at for the last uh, five weeks in in service, uh, both in the time of Advent and on Christmas Day. And I think this passage is really the capstone on that theology, that Jesus is not just the king of the world. He was born king of the Jews so that he would be king of the world because God's plan was to, through Israel, redeem all of humanity. And so this passage presents us with a number of very uh, stark contrasts, and I want to look at them uh, in these areas. First, what the Magi and this false king Herod, how they interact and what that says to us about uh, how God is calling the nations to himself. I want to look at the devotion and worship of the Magi that they brought to the the Christ child. Um, And then after that, I want to explore this idea that that Joseph was instructed to go down to Egypt and talk about what it means when New Testament authors invoke passages of the Old Covenant scriptures and how we're to understand uh, those pieces of scripture. I want to talk about especially the destruction of the infants or the destruction of of uh, what is some kind sometimes called the holy innocence that is these children who uh, were persecuted uh, for the case of Christ though it's obviously they weren't yet Christians they were just children uh, but in in a very real way these children who died for the faith how how we're to see their uh, perishing at the hand of Herod and what that informs a, a uh, about you know the nature of God and the need for justice, the need for a judge of the earth, and then finally the return to Nazareth and, and what it uh, finally says about our need for a true righteous king. Um, so that was what we had talked about on Christmas Day, and if you remember, it was a very peculiar message because it wasn't at all uh, a typical Christmas message. In that we you know we didn't it wasn't. Um, kind of all the things that you're used to in Christmas, talking about how Jesus' birth is the uh, is God beginning to say, I'm about to destroy Rome and its system. That's not a very Christmassy idea. That's not warm and fuzzy. It's not at all snowy. Um, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really accord with what we traditionally see Christmas as. But uh, in on Christmas Eve, when we were exploring Luke 2, we saw that God was superintending in and through the census that Caesar called, and that Caesar, the emperor of the Roman, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, he, as an emperor, that that phrase "emperor" simply means king of kings and a lord of lords. And so, when you see Christ emerging or being revealed as the true king that God has chosen, it's done in contrast to the Roman Empire. So we saw how Caesar had decreed a word. So Caesar spoke and the whole earth moved at, 
at his word. All the peoples of the earth returned to their original homes to be recorded, and Caesar was kind of taking stock of his empire, if it, it, you know, if you kind of understand that picture. And so even in that, God is is superintending, and through his sovereign hand, he is causing things to take place, which will actually be the fulfillment of prophecy, which is God seeing something beforehand by his spirit, inspiring the prophets of old to speak a word concerning his uh, redemptive plan being realized, and then causing events to take place so that he is found faithful to his word. And then, you know, in this chapter, this continues. God's reign is demonstrated not just in Luke 2, but also in Matthew 2 by his spirit. And he gives four separate prophecies uh, a fulfillment in this chapter. That is, different prophets of old had prophesied a specific word. And then in the birth of Christ, the actual fulfillment of them takes place. So God is not only sovereign in that he's causing events to take place, which will bring about historical realistic time-space events to confirm his word that he also foresaw, and that is how he's glorified. So the, the breaking in of the Christ child on Christmas Day and the subsequent events that happen around his birth are not just about Jesus, God in the flesh, although that is a prime and chief pillar of Christmas, is the incarnation. In that and all around it is this idea of God's sovereign action as being faithful to his people Israel so that he can restore the whole earth. Christ is born the new, he's the newborn king because he's born the king of the Jews, and that's what this passage really talks about. So these four separate prophecies are fulfilled, and by his spirit, God gives four different dreams to characters in this story through which he navigates them through a uh, kind of sea of dangers, if you will. And this is how God is, this is how the writer Matthew is demonstrating God's sovereignty in in the midst of Christ's actual birth. So we also saw, if you remember, on Christmas Eve, that the birth of Christ is the revelation of the wisdom and kingdom of God toppling the kingdom of man. We just mentioned that, that Christ was born as the king of the whole earth at the very time that Rome was setting up its first king over the whole earth. These are to be understood as being in sharp contrast, and Christ in this chapter, the anointed king, is not a tyrant, but he's the true shepherd who will lead Israel into green pastures. This chapter over pretty much over everything else, demonstrates our need for a true king. And that's really my desire today, is to show that Christ was needed to be born so that not only we would have a savior of the world, but that we would have a king who would rule righteously with mercy. So Matthew takes up this theme of contrast between God's king and the would-be king. And just as Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were trapped under the law, so also Christ is born in Uh, and underneath the reign of an evil king, Herod. In Matthew 2, 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. So one of the things with the economy of the scriptures, there's an idea when you begin to, to expound on scripture or learn how to exegete it, is that the scriptures are economical. And what that means is that they don't waste words. And so if every word of the scripture is beneficial to the sum total or understanding of that, we ought to pause when there are phrases that seem apparently um, redundant, what they are actually saying. 
And I believe that's what, the, that, that's what this verse is saying. When Jesus is said to be born in the days of King Herod, the writer is attempting to explain God chose the time when the most evil king to reign on the throne of Israel was just taking, you know, was executing his rule. If you're not familiar with Herod, um, you know, we're going to cover some of the things that he's done in this chapter. But one of the things that Herod did if you know anything about kings, they desire to have children so that their most, you know, sons, so that their sons would eventually sit on the throne. In Herod's example, we see that he's an extremely wicked man. He had sons and he killed them so that they wouldn't take his throne from him. He was an extremely evil and greedy king. And so these magi, they come from the east, they stand before King Herod and trouble him. Why do they trouble him? They say to him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You got you to gotta understand the huge slap in the face this is. You're standing before Herod. He's the king over Israel. You're asking him, where is the king of Israel? You're acknowledging to his face, he is an invalid king. And Herod himself knows this. This is why he's troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why is Jerusalem troubled? Because they know that if they're, if King Herod's not the true king, and there's all these wars that Herod's uh, taking on to himself. Herod was also a great military commander and ex- not just greedy and shrewd. And Herod is now being challenged by this newborn king. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of where the Christ was to be born. And we begin to see the motives of Herod demonstrated. Herod's troubled because he was an invalid king. He was not of the line of David, and his scribes told him that plainly. Herod, his father, uh, was actually an Edomite, which we'll see being slightly important in in a little bit. But not only was he not from David's line, he was also an, an immoral king. If you remember from last week, we talked about when, how when David was in, uh, being installed by God as king, they mentioned of David that he was the one who led out Israel and brought them back in, and that he was the shepherd over Israel, the prince over Judah, as God had told Saul that he would be. But Saul rejected that, and David uh, didn't. And so this idea of the king of the Jews also being the shepherd of Israel, the spiritual shepherd, the pastor, if you will, this is a married idea in the mind of, of Jewish believers. And so when we see Jesus being born as the king of the Jews, we also understand that he is the true shepherd of Israel. It's not possible for Herod to be the shepherd of Israel because he himself is a wayward and evil man. And so he's troubled at this acknowledgement. The wise men ask, where is the real king of the Jews? And they ask it to his face, and Herod's absolutely enraged. He actually uh, attempts to deceive the Magi. You know, picture this, uh, a person who didn't even know that God was uh, bringing about these plans is told by foreigners, those who are supposedly without God in the world, uh, that there's this king born, and he attempts to deceive the wise ones. I mean, that is just a picture of the utter folly of man's attempt to establish his own hierarchy and dominion. This evil king is attempting to deceive these people who actually have some knowledge of what God's doing. 
Herod summons the wise men and ascertains from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent, to the, he sent them to Bethlehem, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. Herod's attempting to deceive these wise men and in such a way as to go and destroy this other uh, king. And so the Magi uh, go and worship. And one of the things I'd like to just appeal to you, many people in uh, Protestantism, they they say unequivocally that these Magi are soothsayers and without God and completely uh, idolaters. And let me just submit perhaps that that's not the full truth or that there's a little bit more nuance here. These magi are, magi are looking for a star, and the question you must ask if you're going to be uh, consistent with, the, with Matthew 2 as God's word is, how did the magi know to look for a star? They weren't just kind of looking in the star and then it plainly said by the star in the sky, this, you know, it wasn't like there's a ye- yellow sticky note in the cosmos that says this, this star indicates that a child is being born in, in Israel. Absolutely not. God spoke by prophets, whether the prophets of whatever country these magi came from, or perhaps his own prophets, which I believe is a a more supportable case, that there was to be a star. If you remember two weeks before Christmas, we actually talked about uh, in Isaiah the, the, the branch of David or the root of Jesse. That is, Jesus was born as a fulfillment to the a seemingly dead line of Jesse and David uh, and their kingdom. And we talked about how all the kings of Israel after David and Solomon had all wavered in their faithfulness to God and led Israel into idolatry and accepted pagan gods and it, uh, you know, allowed their armies to be defeated, etc., etc. And it seemed as if God's promises to David were completely dead and without hope of fulfillment. But these magi, they're readers of the scriptures. They must have had either some prophet of their own country or the prophet of the Hebrew uh, writers, which is extremely possible if you consider the times that Israel was led into the nation of Babylon, the nation of Assyria, the times where Israel was away from their land, it is extremely possible that they left behind copies of the scriptures. It's the only way to make sense of the fact that in the New Testament, they say that Moses has preachers of him in every city. And so these magi perhaps saw what Balaam had prophesied. In Numbers 24, 17 through 18, Balaam, if you remember, the spirit of the Lord rushes on Balaam. Balaam actually wants to prophesy judgment against Israel because he's attempted, uh, Balak is attempting to pay Balaam to prophesy judgment. And Balaam says, I cannot say anything other than what God says concerning Israel. And so if you remember, Balaam says, you know, he, this is the oracle of Balaam. I am the one with eyes who are open, with ears that hear, with a mind that understands the knowledge of God. And then he launches in and gives a prophecy concerning the Christ child in Numbers 24. I see him now, but not now, or I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a, sh- a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Now, may I submit to you that this star which comes out of Jacob is the bright light of the world, which 
comes into the world and enlightens every man, just as Christ, the root of Jesse, came as a fulfillment of God's promises to David that you shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. And so Christ as the star of David, or the, sorry, the, the star that which comes from Jacob, uh, he is the true fulfillment to all the promises that God made, not to just to Jacob, but also to Abraham, as the book of Galatians plainly shows. And so this last portion of Balaam's prophecy may be extremely poignant. For example, Herod's father was an Edomite. Perhaps Herod and his counselors told him plainly that that Edom being dispossessed, king, is, is actually your toppling. And so Herod sees the Christ child as a threat. Uh, again, with this idea that the Magi were not just idolaters, the Magi traveled hundreds, probably more likely thousands of miles in obedience to the word of the Lord, whereas Israel time and again couldn't make it through a desert of 100 miles or 200 miles. What, I, what I'd like to submit is that the Magi are not just idolaters, but that they truly, like uh, many of the kings in the Old Testament, after they had been encountered by God's servants, they, they had come to acknowledge Yahweh as the true God of the world. Their obedience to the wor- word of the Lord that they heard, at least the revelation that they had access to. Matthew 2, 10 through 12, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is repeated over and over again when the disciples and the apostles and Christ himself see God doing something, God fulfills his word, and they rejoice, as it were, with exceedingly great joy. Going to the house, these magi fall down and worship him, and then they offer gifts and treasures. So the Magi come and visit Christ, and they not only worship Christ in the flesh, they also bring him gifts. The, the writer of Matthew's extremely clear here. There's two separate things. They're bowing down, which is a sign of devotion to a king. It's common court courtesy that you would bow before a king. And so these Magi are rec- recognizing the Christ as the true king of not just the Jews, but somehow it affects them the king over the whole earth. They open their gifts and treasures and give them uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which many other preachers have expounded upon the meaning of those. I don't have time uh, to, to talk about that. But then God intervenes again. They're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They depart to their country another way. So not only are they obedient to the prophecy that they heard, understood, and sought after, they then hear a word from God, a dream, in the moment and decide to act upon it in faith. So the Magi are bowing down before Christ and worshiping God in the flesh. Their coming to recognize Jesus as the Messiah is a foreshadowing of the rest of the New Testament that not only will all the Jews recognize Christ as the Messiah, but the the whole world will come and bow down to him. And the nations, as we've been talking about in our talks on Isaiah the last few weeks, will stream to the house of the Lord. And so these magi continue uh, on in their quest and they, they go home. But in, at this moment, the story takes a turn. And up until now, it's been glorious and uh, redemptive. And now there's going to be a point of sorrow. God, in this story, is continuing to display his sovereignty by telling Joseph to go to Egypt in a dream. In Matthew 2, 14 through 15, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and he remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, if you um, remember, God had called Israel out of Egypt, and that was uh, taking place in the book of Exodus. Now, one of the ways to understand Matthew's intentional uh, assertion that the prophecy of Malachi uh, has been fulfilled, or sorry, um, Hosea, Malachi was last week, uh, Hosea has been fulfilled, is an intentional reassertion of the fact that God is continuing to be faithful to Israel. God has redeemed Israel out of Egypt, and he will redeem them. God not only protects the Christ by sending an angel to tell Joseph, but he also saw it beforehand and spoke by the prophet Hosea. In the flight to Egypt, then, Jesus is revealed as the true Israel who will walk in the light of the Lord. If you go back to Hosea 11, Hosea 11 is is the lament of the prophet that Israel has never been faithful to God. And Israel, even though God drew them in with cords of human kindness, with tender love and mercy, teaching Ephraim how to even walk. It's, it's language to describe that God is training up Israel, but then Israel is constantly turning away. And the heart of God in Hosea 11 is weeping over the fact that he can't give Israel up. Even though Israel turns away so often, he just can't, he can't, uh, he can't forsake his son. And so, by, by Matthew's use of this phrase, Matthew is saying that Christ is the true Israel. That, that this fulfillment, which has come, come into the story, is basically saying that the, the previous Israel, or the previous son of God, and again, that's poetic word, language, the previous child of the Lord was not able to walk in the ways of the Lord, but this one, this son, Jesus, will be the one who... Uh, truly fulfills and walks in the law of God. And so when what I'd like to assert is that when New Testament authors invoke a passage or a phrase that if you go back to the quotation, it doesn't make any sense because it seems like a negative thing, what the New Testament author is attempting to do is say that Christ is the fulfillment of the lack that was experienced in the Old Covenant telling of the prophecy. So, uh, after this comes about, God warns Joseph and, and rescues his son away to Egypt, and then he'll bring him back. Herod now shows his evil uh, in, in plain view. It's not just from history that we know that, that Herod is an evil man. The destruction comes, uh, the destruction that then comes after uh, the Magi leave and, and go a different way, and God tells Joseph to take his son to Egypt. Uh, the destruction that comes after this indicates our need for a righteous king. <clears throat> In Matthew 2.16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. This is a genocide of innocent children, or children at least, at the very least, who have done no moral wrong on their own, uh, say whatever you wish about original sin or a sin nature. But what this demonstrates to us is not only the evilness of man's king, but also our need for a true, righteous, godly king. Through Herod's actions, we see the effects of building our own kingdoms. In a way, it's a parable or a story about our own effort to establish our own security 
rather than trust in the promise of God. It would have been much better for Herod had he recognized the authority of Christ the King. But he decided to take matters into his own hands and destroys those who are around him. We see in this story our need for a righteous king who will not deal harshly, but will rule with righteousness and mercy as the foundation of his throne. Christ and his kingship, the king of the Jews and the king of the whole world, is being set up, just as in Luke 2, in this chapter, as a stark contrast between the kings of men. Um, Not only that, we see our need for a judge who will settle accounts. If you read this story and you see God acting in and through this, yet God does not stop this evil that Herod carries out in Bethlehem, we, we are left with the necessity of a judge who will repay. And this comes out over and over again in a, New Te- in a New Testament sense of justice, a God who renders unto every man according to his works. It is terribly depressing to read this story in Matthew 2 and see these children destroyed without cause, without any sort of sense of, of evil that they've uh, carried out, nor are they even being repaid Uh, for their own lives, but rather they are just wholesale slaughtered by an evil king, a a king who doesn't even have the authority to sit on the throne of the Jews, and and not need a a God of justice at the end of the age who will repay. If, If you do not have a God of justice who repays, as Romans 2 says, according to the actions that one carries out in his life, uh, then this story basically gives over an ethic that uh, stuff just happens, and sometimes it's horrible, and there's no justice. And that at the end of history, there is, is nothing beautiful or, or redeemable about existence. But this story does not leave us at that point. In fact, its absence of the fact that Herod was even judged righteously points forward to a necessity of God as a judge over the whole earth. So, That being said, an angel then comes and tells Joseph to return to uh, Israel. But when Joseph returns, he finds out that there is uh, a son of Herod, which is continuing on Herod's evil. Our need for a righteous king then is further demonstrated in Joseph's fear even to go into the region where Archelaus was reigning over. Archelaus in in this story is kind of demonstrated as even though Herod didn't recognize, and his children took it even a step further. Archelaus is, is uh, extremely wicked, and history would later demonstrate that uh, the Romans couldn't even permit Archelaus's violence, and they actually deposed him. But um, this need for a king, a righteous king who will sit on the throne of David, is over and over again, mentioned in this story. And Christ in this story is the fulfillment of all of those needs. Christ in this account does not rebuke or uh, lash out. Uh, Again, he's only a child. But God in this story is patient. And so the God of justice is also at the same time a God that is full of mercy and a God who is patient over history, working his redemptive plan over and over again. In this story, we do not see God's salvation come speedily, like we had mentioned at Christmas Eve. Sometimes God's word, although it is a a hope-filled message, it also must come with faith. That is, we, we can't just hear God's message of hope and then say God will save us immediately. We also need faith to believe God's word and to trust it in the midst of dire circumstances. These children who are destroyed 
and uh, seemingly without judgment uh, in a meaningless way tell us not only of our need for a judge, but it tells us also of our need for the Holy Spirit to deposit patience and faith in us so that we can go through times where we we don't understand or we don't see the fulfillment or redemption of God break in on the scene. Um, I would submit to you that it is necessary to read all of the scripture in a consistent way, and that knowledge of God's promises in the Old Covenant is a vital key to unlocking the stories in the New Testament, as this demonstrates, and, and as well as Luke 2. And one of the ways that I think it is helpful to do so is to read uh, books one at a time. One of the things that we've done in previous years in this church has been to encourage people to set yearly goals. And um, I believe in yearly goals. I believe in uh, recognizing the new year as a time of, of a new chance to get things right, so to speak. But one of the things that I would maybe humbly submit to you this year, if you're considering adopting a Bible in a year plan, choose one in which you will not develop a schizophrenic understanding of the Bible. It is impossible for me, and I would I'm not a I'm not a genius but I you know I went th- through college and God graciously taught me how to learn a little bit and I don't know very many things but I know a few and it is impossible for me to read five different places in the scripture and have any sort of cohesive understanding of what's going on I would submit to you that if you're going to um adopt a new Bible in the year plan in uh in the future, in the next, you know, few days before the New Year's, that you consider reading in a holistic way or a book-by-book way, or perhaps maybe just two places at once. But splitting it up into five or six sections or even three or four, what it does is it it creates in you an inability to um, be able to tie all the threads together, as it were. It's necessary to read this Uh, read this portion of scripture as a whole in one setting. And if you break up this chapter, there is no final redemption that God brings about. There's just either in the first place a magi scene where Christ is adored, and then at the end a destruction scene. And without balancing both of them in the same day or at the same time, uh, I believe that some of the glory of God is just somewhat left out. So I I would humbly submit to you this going into the new year, if you're going to adopt a a plan of reading the scripture, it will pay rich dividends in the future to read large sections of scripture as a whole together, not just a chapter here and then a chapter there, or God forbid some kind of random poke into your Bible method of study. God has a redemptive plan, and it has been demonstrated throughout Scripture, and it has been unfolded in a consistent and ever-progressing way, and it benefits us if we can follow that progression. So, <clears throat> Matthew two twenty-two through 23, but he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea. He was afraid to go there, and he was warned again in a dream to go to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Again, this is God superintending in the circumstances. God is the one who gave Joseph the dream. Joseph, uh, already afraid to go to the region where Archelaus was reigning, is warned by this dream to go into Galilee, and 
the events which took place in the real historical world in time space events with real people demonstrate the faithfulness of god through his prophets of old which he saw beforehand and has brought forth in the life of christ in this in this passage of scripture we see god over and over again being faithful to his word and demonstrating his sovereignty, not just his omnipotence or power to wield and orchestrate events, but also his omniscience, the ability to see the events take place beforehand and by his spirit prophesy them through his prophets. And so this passage firmly sets the life of Christ at its beginning, and therefore everything that will happen to Christ going forward as a fulfillment. It is wrapped in the context of God fulfilling his promises to Israel. I'm, I would like to also submit that in your life, you will encounter people of uh, both Muslim or Islamic faith and uh, Hebrew-minded believers, and that the only thing which will be sufficient for uh, for the evangelization, or that is the sharing of your light with those people, is to do it in a way that is historically relevant. I believe that one of the reasons why we are are having such a crisis of understanding of the scriptures is because we have attempted to hijack the story of Christ and what He's done on the cross for us outside of the context of the fulfillment of all the promises of Scripture. And it is with restoring that context that we will be able to read the whole Scripture and, again, not just be students of the New Testament, but also the Old. It's my desire that this year you would see these stories and that you would not just see the tragedy that takes place in them, but that in the midst of seeing that tragedy, you would see God's sovereignty and that he would be glorified in your understanding and that you would actually see Christ as uh, uh, covenantally faithful, as it were, uh, one of Paul's great phrases. In this passage, even though uh, Archelaus is a wicked king who reigns in the place where his father had reigned beforehand, even in the midst of evil, God's, world, God's word is brought forth, uh, and he is faithful. So that is the message of the slaughter of the innocents. It is not just that these children died in some terrible, tragic way without any sort of redemption. This message not only says that God is faithful and sovereign and all-knowing in and through the events, not desiring the evil to be carried out, but superintending goodwill in and among those events, and that he demonstrates his faithfulness to his people, although they have enemies on every side. And that is exactly what takes place to us in the church today. God is faithful to his bride by his spirit, restoring and renewing her time after time. And that although we may be surrounded by enemies on every side who wish to kill our children or destroy our ideas in the, in the marketplace of discourse, as it were, he is faithful and he will carry out his, his word. And so this message, though it, it doesn't uh, show any sort of hope in and of itself, because it's set in the fulfillment of God's word in the past, we know that by extension God will fulfill his word in the future. I think it is also not only important to read the Old Covenant, but by doing so, you see the way in which God is faithful to his word, and it allows you to read these stories, which seemingly don't make any sense, because they're just, they, they appear to end with just frustration and death. But in, at, at the end of the day, the Christ child is still living in the story. 
That's what we have to look forward to. God's word is not finished. God's word, word is still alive and active. And though the enemy wished to kill the Christ child, God caused events to take place to, to subvert the enemy's plans. This victory of God over and against the king of man speaks of a future forward victory that will come about at the end of the age after Christ has, through his people, uh, accomplished his redemptive plan in all the peoples of the earth. And it points forward to the day, as we've been speaking in Advent, when the king of, G the king of Israel and the king over the whole world will be finally demonstrated and that there will be no one else to subvert his reign or his kingdom.